Well, good evening and welcome to uh, kick off of a new series. Thought we'd start with something safe and talk about politics for a little bit, since I know that makes everybody's anxiety level go down. Seriously, we are in a, a kind of a meta-series called The Bible Speaks, and we talked about racial unity and we talked about sexuality, and I committed to you that we would also talk about politics, really a Christian's interaction with the political part of our public square. So that's what we're going to discuss, but before we do, let me open in prayer. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we're grateful for this opportunity to gather, this opportunity to reason together. Lord, it's our earnest desire to know your will, to read your word, and then give us the wisdom, we pray, to put that into practice in a truthful and in a gracious way. Lord, I do pray uh, for current events. Uh, we are all disturbed about circumstances in Afghanistan and the human suffering there. Father, we pray particularly for the women and the young girls there and the danger that they are in from a very hostile ideology. Lord, I pray that you would be with them. I pray, Lord, that you would embolden the governments around the world to, uh, to do what they can to ease the suffering. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you know our routine. There's a number on your handout and on the screen, and you can text questions during uh, class time, and we'll try to answer your questions, or at least as many as we can. Well, The Bible Speaks is a series where we want to be in the text, and we will be in the text every week. And I'd like to answer some different questions about the topic of politics but I wanna answer it from a textual point of view, in other words, a biblical point of view. We'll look at history, we'll look at secular ideas, but we're always gonna be grounded in what does the Bible have to say about this. Well, politics is a, it's a ubiquitous issue, and what I mean by that is every human community has politics. The word politics comes from a Greek word polis, which means city or community, and politics is the management, government uh, of those communities. It is the process by which groups of people manage to live together, sometimes well, sometimes poorly, and if you know anything about the Greeks, usually poorly. But basically, politics is something that is inherent in any group of people. You have to have some method of getting along with one another. That's fundamentally what the area of politics is about. Politics is naturally divisive, sometimes more so, sometimes less so, but politics involves different opinions on certain communal issues. So at its very best, it's a healthy debate, it's a give and take, it's a compromise, uh, it's a tolerance for one another's needs and the ability to put the needs of the community ahead of my own particular desire in any given circumstance. It can be extremely divisive when I'm not willing to put the needs of the community above my own desires at any given time or when we form into factions or parties, which is very natural, and we begin to see uh, the others in our community as adversaries. That's where we are in American culture in the 21st century, is we see each other less as fellow Americans and more as adversaries. There are a lot of reasons for this, and the lines that fracture us are really a lot of different lines. It's not just racial issues or ethnic 
or religious or economic or social. There are fracture lines through all of this. It's not necessary that we view each other as enemies, but unfortunately, it's a product of our times. So we're gonna spend some time seeing what does the Bible, how does the Bible equip us to navigate these kinds of circumstances? Well, the first thing I wanna do is go back in history and I wanna go back to the time of Jesus because I don't want you to think that the Bible is this long ago far away book that's kind of mythical and those people live some kind of first century life and we're going to bring it to the 21st century of technology and, and advancement of humanity and what in the world could those people have understood about our lives? What in the world could God have to say to them and at the same time to us? Well, it turns out that human nature hasn't changed much and the world's been political for a long time. As long as there's been humanity, there have been politics. Let me tell you about the politics of Israel. Uh, it's called Palestine at that time because that's the name that the Romans gave to this entire area is Palestine. The area of Israel was called Samaria and Judea. But let's talk about the political factions. First of all, the Romans, start at the top. The Roman governor, which at the time of Jesus at the end of his life is Pontius Pilate, he lives in Caesarea. That's a beautiful town on the sea, huge palace there that Herod the Great had built. Remember, Herod the Great died shortly after Jesus was born. We're now, Jesus is 33 or 34 years old, and we're now at the end of his ministry. Pontius Pilate is the governor. He's living in that great mansion. Uh, this is where not Netanyahu lives in a community. He doesn't live in a palace, but he lives in a community there in Caesarea. It's a beautiful, upscale place in Israel today, and it definitely was then. The Romans were basically interested in, not so much in governing Palestine, but in extracting as much money with as little effort as possible from Palestine. So they were basically uh, keeping, they were farming money out of Palestine. They were conquered provinces and they wanted them to continue to produce revenue and goods for Rome. So at the top of this hierarchy, even though they didn't do a lot, were the Roman authorities. They enforced peace from a Roman point of view. They lent some troops to the civil authorities, which brings me to who's really doing the civil work? Who's got the uh, you know, the uh, city courts and who's building the roads and who's putting in stop signs and who's actually running the area of Palestine. Well, that was given to Herod's kids. So Herod the Great dies. Four of his sons, for our story, I'm just gonna talk about two of them, are ruling different areas here and they are the civil authorities. The Romans said, you guys get to be king of different pieces of Israel, and you just make sure that you deliver the taxes, you run things, uh, set up hospitals, you know, get, get the people vaccinated, you know, do whatever you need to do, because we Romans don't want to fool with that stuff. So that was, in this area, by the way, was Herod Philip. So he is a son of Herod, and over here is Herod Antipas. You can see by the color coding, you know, the different areas. The Decapolis was a Greek area, not a lot of Jews over there. And then Samaria and Judea at this time were ruled by the Roman governor. One of the other boys had that area, but he was so bad, they had a recall election. 
and they recalled him. Uh, I know, you think all the stuff we're doing right now is new. It's not new. It's been around for a long time. So all the civil authority are by Herod's kids, the kings or the tetrarchs, they had titles, and they were the civil authorities. The religious authorities were here in Jerusalem, and there was a Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a religious organization of 70 elders of the Jews, and they administered religious law. So for example, the Herods, let's just say the Herods didn't go to church much growing up, and so they said they were Jews, but not so much. And so they said, look, we're gonna take care of people who run red lights and that kind of thing. We're gonna be the civil magistrates and we're gonna do taxes and all that kind of thing. But man, when it gets into this religious law and breaking the religious rules, you guys can handle that. We really don't care what you do. You can't do capital punishment because the Romans alone allowed, they were the only ones allowed to do capital punishment, but you can whip people, beat them, put them in jail, do whatever you wanna do. And so the Sanhedrin enforced religious laws. That's why in the book of Acts, when the apostles are teaching in Jesus' name, they're hauled in front of the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin says, you're teaching heretical stuff teaching that Jesus is the son of God. We don't like that. We're gonna put you in jail. We're gonna beat you, etc. That's why the Sanhedrin is doing that. Does that make sense? Okay, so you have different layers of authority. It's a very complicated situation there. I mean, it's far messier than what we're used to. The other thing you have, let's just focus on the Jewish people. We think that we've got two major parties in America with a, a whole host of lesser parties. They had a lot of political parties and ideological parties, and I thought I'd just introduce you to a few of them. You're going to see this in the New Testament. You're gonna see these words and these parties, and I'm just gonna give you a brief rundown. You can ask questions if you wanna know more about this, but I just wanted you to know there were a lot of political parties. It was, they were very involved. So first of all, I'll start with the zealots. The zealots were Let's just say they were extremely involved in politics in an extremely violent way. So zealots were a Jewish political and ideological religious party, but mainly a political party. And their main goal in life was, God is our king, not Caesar, not the Romans. We're not paying taxes to you guys. We don't like your soldiers being here. You are oppressing us. The Romans were not nice at all. And so you're oppressing us, you're keeping us basically at subsistence level, you take everything we have, we want you out of here, and if we could, we'd start a war if we could get enough people to do it. And so they assassinated Roman soldiers, they even assassinated certain religious leaders that were working with the Romans. Uh, today, we might call them terrorists in the sense that they clearly use violent means, but they were a political party. You remember Jesus uh, had one of his disciples who was from this political party, right? Made everybody else nervous. Uh, Sadducees, now the Sadducees were also a political party. They were a religious party too. They had certain religious beliefs, but mainly they were a political party. They wanted to be in power. And so they saw themselves as the one that basically negotiated and brokered power with the Romans and the Herods, the Herod boys, that are the civil magistrates and the people. And so they ran the temple, 
and they ran the whole religious structure. Think of them as, I'm not picking on the Roman Catholic Church, but kind of think of them as the Catholic Church. You know, they're basically trying to navigate between the secular world and the people. They're fairly secular people themselves. They held high positions, they thought a lot of themselves, and they saw themselves in the ruling hierarchy, if you will. But politically, they believed in co-op, they didn't like the Romans, but they wanted to cooperate with the Romans so that they didn't upset the stability of the society. They hated the Zealots because the Zealots were always trying to get a war started, and the Sadducees are like, look, if you do that, the Romans are going to kill us all. It's gonna be terrible. You know, our property values are gonna go down, you won't be able to sell your house. I mean, bad things will happen. And so they wanted the status quo. Herodians were a very secular group of people and they looked at the Herod the Great and they looked at the Herod boys and they said, look, they're Jewish, but you know, they wear all the coolest new Greek and Roman fashions. They drive the coolest new cars that they have in Rome. They live a very secular life and it looks like, man, they've got it all. And so we wanna be really secular Jews and we wanna embrace the Roman authorities and we wanna be prosperous and we want a bunch of temples and things like all the other cities have. We want a professional basketball team. You know, we want all those things. So the Herodians were very secular minded and they were embracing the culture of Rome and Greece. Pharisees were a religious party as well. They were more devout. They believed in following the law of Moses as strictly as possible. And they believed that you should follow the law of Moses as strictly as possible. And they didn't mind telling you when you didn't. So the Pharisees were feared and respected. They were respected because they were so devout. But they were feared because they just were a little holier than thou and didn't mind telling you that. But politically, they also had seats on the Sanhedrin. The Sadducees and the Pharisees were represented on the Sanhedrin. No Zealots, Herodians, no Essenes. I'll tell you why they weren't there in a minute. But basically, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the Sadducees were always the liberals, and the Pharisees were always the conservatives. Like they were like, whatever we do, it just needs to be in accord with the law of Moses and the Sadducees, whatever we do needs to make sure the status quo stays the same. And so they were in conflict some. You'll see some interesting debates recorded in Jewish literature that happened in the Sanhedrin. So they were a political party and a religious party. The Essenes were a religious party who believed that the whole world was impure. They thought the Pharisees were liberal. And so what they did was they withdrew from society. I wanted to tell you about them because we're gonna talk about monasticism in a little bit in the Christian world. They withdrew from society, lived out in the desert in communities. A lot of people think that where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found out in the middle of nowhere and that that community was a community of Essenes who had pulled away and are living, waiting for the end of the world. Like God, how long until you smite all these people? You know, the Romans were bad, the Herod boys were bad, but so were the Sadducees and everybody else. They were the only true believers. And so they were political in the sense that they were rooting for the downfall of the entire civilization, okay? So these are some of the political and religious, but it kind of merged together, some of the political parties of Jesus' time. So for example, Matthew 
would likely have been a Sadducee in terms of his politics because he was a tax collector. He was working for the man and he was oppressing his fellow Jews. Simon the Zealot killed people like Matthew, you know, if he had a chance. Matthew had to be the most nervous disciple. Jesus comes home with Simon and Matthew starts sleeping with one eye open, right? And so the rest of them, some of them were clearly raised in Pharisees' households. Some of them were just a little more secular, but you do have political factions and political parties. So what I wanted to mention here is that every age is political and that there were layers of authority, hierarchy of authority, and there were political differences and political jockeying in Jesus' time. And Jesus was in the middle of that. You see, some of these parties wanted to co-opt Jesus, and the text we're going to look at tonight is where you see Jesus being caught in between some of these political parties, and I think it will help us uh, quite a bit to look at that. So, a couple of things. Uh, let's talk about some of the questions that we're gonna look at. Should the church and state be separate in public affairs? That's what we're gonna talk about in this lesson, separation of church and state. We'll look a little bit, a little bit at the history of it. As you can tell, in Jesus' time, the church and state weren't really separated very much, not by the Jews anyway, in that their religion and their politics just merged together in those political parties. In future times, we'll talk about should Christians be involved in politics? Not everybody thinks that you should. Some things Christians should not be. And we'll look at that historically. Should Christians be affiliated with a particular political party? For example, should you register as Democrat, Republican, whatever, Green, Independent? And if does that mean you stand for some of the things in the platform that maybe are not biblical? Should Christians affiliate with a political party? And can Christians support an illegitimate government? If the government is doing things that we consider illegitimate, can we support that government? When can Christians rebel against a government? And so these are the kinds of questions I thought we would ask because I think these are the questions that are going on in our world today. But the fundamental first question I'd like to get to is the idea of should Christians bring their religion, the church, into the public square, the state? Should those two things be separated? Question. Yes, this is about the Sanhedrin. Yes. How did a man get appointed to the Sanhedrin and uh, what role and factor was the high priest? Good question. So how do you get on the Sanhedrin? Uh, it's not a parliamentary system. It's not a democratic system. It's an old boy network. So basically you have power blocks and they would choose the people. Sometimes they came to the fore. For example, in the book of Acts, you're gonna see one of the great Pharisees, rabbis, Gamaliel, stand up and speak. Gamaliel's there because he's the preeminent rabbi of the time. He's the great thinker, he's a Pharisee. Uh, some of the Sadducees would be people who held positions in the hierarchy of the temple, and so by the, their stature, they were there. So these were successful, well-connected people. There's nothing egalitarian about this, nothing democratic about this. So you got on there through connections and kind of a, and a system like that. So that's how people got on the Sanhedrin. How did the high priest relate to the Sanhedrin? Very uneasy alliance. Traditionally, the high priest led the Sanhedrin because the high priest was the religious leader of the people. Even though there were different factions, high priest, always gonna be a Sadducee. 
basically. And so the high priest, even though there were different factions, the high priest was the leader of the Sanhedrin. This got really sticky uh, for the couple hundred years before Jesus. This is more than you want to know. But politically speaking, it got to where the Jews didn't pick their high priest anymore. That the Greeks and then the Romans picked the high priest that they wanted, somebody who would keep things smooth, and they certainly didn't want some radical, zealot, religious guy, and so they started appointing the high priest. When that started happening, the high priest had less religious authority, and it became much more political. It became much more power was based on favor, money, etc., rather than religious authority. So that's maybe more than you wanted to know, but basically the high priest was the leader of the, the highest religious authority. So kind of ran the Sanhedrin, okay? So I wanna preface our text by telling you how big a deal it was to the Romans. This is something you really have to understand. It's a big deal to the Romans that everybody recognizes the authority of Caesar. Even at the time of Jesus, so think 30 AD to 34 AD, around that time, the Roman emperors were autocrats. I mean, they were like the most powerful person in the world. They had no real accountability whatsoever. They hadn't had accountability since Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar's like 90 years before. Julius Caesar gets rid of the Republic and basically makes himself the emperor, like I'm, I'm in charge, right? Well, since that time, the emperors have done pretty much what they want to do. They are just starting to think they might also be gods. In other words, they have claims to divinity. They not only want to be served and obeyed, they also want to be worshiped. That's happening right about this time. So I want to give you two scriptures that show you what a big deal this is. I'm plucking these out of the, the uh, arrest and trial of Jesus. Listen to what Jesus is being accused of in the trial. Luke 23, the whole assembly rose, takes Jesus, leads him off to Pontius Pilate. Why do you take him to Pontius Pilate? Because we don't wanna just whip him and beat him, we wanna kill him, only the Romans can do that. And so they began to accuse him. What do they accuse him of? Hey, this guy's blasphemous. Pontius Pilate goes, I don't care what he says about your religion. Does he pay his taxes? If so, I'm fine. You know, so don't bother me. What do they accuse him? We found this man subverting our nation, in other words, stirring up trouble, he opposes payment of taxes to Caesar. That's a lie, but it's a useful lie. And he claims to be a king. Well, that's something Pontius Pilate can't ignore because now you're saying you're a rival for the emperor. The word Lord in both Latin, Greek, was specifically attributed to the emperor. You are Lord. It had a little bit of a divine connotation, but it mostly had a political connotation. And when Christians said Jesus is Lord, the Romans understood that as that is a rebellious person who doesn't accept the authority of Caesar. That's a big deal. One more scripture. This is at the same time, but out of the Gospel of John, listen to what's happening. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. Why? Because he realizes, Man, this guy hadn't broken any Roman law. And the Jews kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Even the Jews know this. 
And so what are they doing? Well, they're trumping up charges and they're basically threatening Pontius Pilate saying, if you let this guy go and he says he's king, you're not being faithful to Caesar and I've got Caesar's email address, which they did. And so when Pilate heard this, he brought him out, sat down and said, this is your king? And they said, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? He's like trying to shame him into, why don't you guys go home? We have no king but Caesar. Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. At that point, Pilate doesn't have any choice because he has to acknowledge that because it's a direct threat to the authority of Caesar. So now I wanna take you to our text for today. And this text is going to address the question of the separation of church and state. This is where Christians go most often to answer this question. You've seen this story before. The Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap Jesus in his words. At this point, the people love Jesus, they're following Jesus, and the Pharisees are like, look, we just don't agree with his theology and he's making us look bad and he's upsetting the whole religious organization. He seems to know the scriptures really well. We can't pin him down that what he's saying isn't biblical. And so they decide we're just gonna have to get rid of him. And so they sent some of their disciples along with the Herodians. Herodians don't like him either. Now these are two political parties that don't agree with each other, but they banded together to get rid of Jesus. And so they said, teacher, we know you're a man of integrity. You teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Flattery, flattery, flattery. Okay, so tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Jesus knows what's going on here. You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Now this is a trap and it's really good because what they fundamentally wanna do is they can't kill him. They can't shut him up by beating him. First of all, he's too popular with the people and he won't quit. I mean, he's just, he's not afraid. And so they decide we gotta get this guy killed so we need to get the Romans to do our dirty work. How in the world are we gonna get the Romans to get interested in this itinerant Jewish preacher from Galilee? Well, let's trap him in something that the Romans are hot about. And so they ask him this question. Is it lawful for us to pay Jews to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Well, it's a trap in this sense. If he says, yes, you can pay taxes to Caesar, then they know that his popularity with the people will go down. They're gonna go, great, you're such a sellout. You used to be for the people, now you got power and you're not for us anymore and you now agree with the Sadducees and all the other people we hate who say we gotta pay our taxes to Rome. If he says, no, you don't have to pay your taxes, they go, bonus, we're going to accuse you to the Romans and say, oh, yeah, we love taxes, but this guy's stirring up trouble. So it is indeed a trap. So how does Jesus get out of this? This is really brilliant. But Jesus basically says, bring me the coin that you use to pay the tax. And they bring him a denarius, Roman coin, whose portrait is on this coin and whose inscription. They said Caesar's because in those days, all the, all the coins, except Jewish coins, all coins had the image of whoever the ruler is. I mean, before social media, this is the only way you could get your face out there. And so literally, you would have statues, you would have busts, but all the coins had the image of the ruler. This isn't just a Roman deal. This is everybody except the Jews. Jews didn't do images of people. Uh, on any of their coins. They didn't have statues of people. They didn't do anything that could be worshiped. 
So he said, whose portrait is? And they said, Caesar's. And he says, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And they're like, how did he wriggle out of that? He didn't answer the question, but we have no idea what to say. So I mean, it's brilliant. So then they went away because they didn't know what to say. And so it's a brilliant answer. So that's point number one. But this story has helped to influence uh, how Christians and even the founders of our country who were at least steeped in the Judeo-Christian tradition, how they understood the interrelationship between church and state, between faith and taxes, between civil authorities and religious authorities. And so I wanna trace a little bit of that history First, I'm not spending a lot of time on this unless you have questions, but interesting thing about America, and this is Thomas Jefferson, 1802. Uh, this is from a letter that he wrote. I contemplate with sovereign reverence that the act of the whole American people which declared that their legislature, so he's now saying that we have instituted this into the law, that the legislature should make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. This is the establishment clause of the Constitution. So he's referring to that. He says, the American people have put this in there, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. So early on, you get this idea of set, there's some sense of separation. Now for Jefferson, and when this came into being, the idea was to protect the church from the state because it was very common and in fact, a couple of the colonies had state denominations, state religions. And so they agreed as a group that you're never gonna be able to agree on that. And what we'll do is legislatures just don't mandate a religion. Okay, in those days you could support religion, you could do a lot of stuff with religion, but you can't mandate it and say, well, you have to be a Puritan before you can hold public office, or you have to be to live here to get full rights you have to be a Quaker or whatever denomination you were. So it was a protection of the church from the state. You probably experience, and we experience today, something a little more recent, and it comes from the 1940s. There's a Supreme Court case where you first see the, the rise of this idea. And here's from the uh, opinion in Everson versus Board of Education. The First Amendment has erected a wall between church and state, now remember, for Jefferson, it was a separation so that the state didn't make a religious test. That, will, that wall must be kept high and impregnable. We could not approve the slightest breach. Now, however, the understanding of that separation that Jefferson talked about is protecting the state from the church. So you go from freedom of religion, which is what's enshrined in our constitution, to freedom from religion. And that is how jurisprudence has moved through the centuries since our founding. You can argue, and many people do, that we have basically lost our way in the sense that we have deviated from the original sense of this. That's why you'll see originalists have issues with the idea of separation of church and state, which is a phrase that today means the public square needs to be free from religion. Whereas originally it was religion needs to be free of restrictions by the government. So this idea of separation of church and state in the public square is pretty 
solid and it's interesting that it started from one direction and today it's from another. And you'll see uh, the laws and some of the conflict in the United States really goes back to that. What about in the church? Christians have generally, I'm gonna summarize, four major ways that Christians have understood this relationship between church and state. So we dealt with the secular side, now we're gonna deal with the religious side. And I wanna start with the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages. The Catholic Church basically understood the state as subservient to the church. If you think about the popes and the papacy from really about 1000 AD on, certainly up to the Protestant Reformation, think roughly 1600, a little earlier, but basically for you know five or 600 years, the Pope really wielded power and influence over the kings and the princes in the world. And so that idea in that era was that the church was the supreme authority and wielded civil authority through Christian kings and who were beholden to the Pope. So one idea would be that the church is the legitimate authority and should exercise authority over the state, that the church dominates. Martin Luther comes along, reformers come along. They don't like this setup for a lot of reasons, one, the main one being biblical reasons. But Martin Luther comes up with this idea, under, this is his understanding of the scriptures, is that there are two kingdoms. And by the way, this is true. Now, the way he implements it, you may or may not agree with, but there's the kingdom of God and there's a kingdom of man. There is a civil authority, like there's a, you know, the United States of America and the king of Sweden, whatever, you know, queen of England. You basically, you have these civil authorities and God has given them the task. We'll talk more about this later. What's a legitimate government? God has given them the task to administrate basically the civil relationship between people. And it's given the kingdom of God, the church, the believers, the job of making people righteous. So God has ordained the governments to make people be uh, social justice. Think about justice, to administer justice between people, whether they're believers or not. And he's ordained the church to bring people to Christ and help them become right before God, in harmony with God. Uh, it's more than moral, but morally virtuous and God-fearing and God-serving. So Luther saw two God-ordained spheres that ideally work together. So you begin to see a little separation, but both of them are subject to God. So church dominates in the Catholic church, spheres of influence. Let's fast forward to modern times, relatively, the 1970s, saw the rise of what was called the moral majority. The moral majority was a political movement of Christians, mainly brought together around social issues, not so much around economic issues, uh, taxation, etc mainly around social issues. And so Christians came together into what effectively became a political party. Not a political party in that it ran its own president, presidential candidate, for example, but a political party in that it influenced very heavily anybody that wanted to get elected needed to come to the moral majority, that party, that political group, and say, 
do you, are you willing to implement some of the legislation we want for some of the social issues that we want? So what you see there is a Christian political party. This is basically Christians banding together to play the secular political game. Catholic Church said, I'm not playing the game, I'm in charge of the game. I'm gonna win the game. Luther said, there are two games being played here. There's a religious game and there's a civil game. And God is over both of them, but they have different purposes. Moral majority reflected a movement where Christians said, look, these political parties aren't doing what we want. They're not going the way we want. These are not godly platforms for these political parties. We're gonna be a political party. We're gonna jump in and we're gonna play the game and we're gonna influence the game. That movement didn't end particularly well. It basically, uh, playing that game, Christians got co-opted into the system, into the game. And as a result, Christians began to be seen since the 70s. I know some of you are saying 70s, wasn't born then. I know, but you inherited this. And what you inherited was, nowadays people look at Christians and they say, you guys are trying to tell us how to live. That wasn't really true largely before that time. I mean, you might have Christians that were obnoxious and they were like, oh, I'm holier than thou, you should do this. But not in the political sphere. When the moral majority became into the political game, all of a sudden, it wasn't just, well, this Republican happens to be a Christian or this Democrat happens to be a Christian. It became this political party of Christians is trying to enforce on us their views on social issues. And so people began to resent not the moral majority as a political party, but Christians trying to tell them how to live their life. That's where that comes from, is when Christians entered the game and started playing the game, they became players. And consequently, they became fair targets. Does that make sense? That's why you see that reaction today is because of that entry into the game. Final. This is very recent. Rod Dreher, I'm just picking on Rod Dreher because he's the most vocal person recently. He wrote a book called The Benedict Option. And Christians, not all Christians agree with any of these, but these are ways Christians have looked at it. Here's what The Benedict Option is about. Historical. Back in the sixth and fifth century AD, so the late 400s, early 500s, Roman Empire, 400 years after Jesus, crumbling. I mean, the barbarians are at the gates and the Roman Empire is about to fall, and bad things are happening. I mean, laws are breaking down, uh, virtue is not there, people have changed, and they're cutthroat, and they're mean to each other. It's really ugly time in history. And so, Saint Benedict wasn't a saint then, but Benedict the monk in the Catholic Church says, man, this is going nowhere good at all. We better hunker down and preserve Christianity preserve morality because we're gonna have a bunch of barbarians running around here before you know it, and they did. And so they retreated into monasteries, and this is the heavy monastic movement where Christians then retreated from the world, worshiped together, and waited out the craziness in the world, and then they come back into the world after this is over and say, we got all the good books, we still have copies of the Bible, we're back here now that you guys are done with your craziness, we're back here 
to bring the gospel back to society. In other words, come in, hunker down, and wait for this to pass. I'm probably not doing this credit, uh, Dreher wouldn't agree with all that, but that's essentially the idea. So what he's saying is, today's kinda like the sixth century AD. Our culture, our civilization is breaking down. America is, uh, and the world in general, the nation state in general, but mainly America. America is not such a good place. It's not a very moral place, everything's going south. I think the same thing's happening as happened to Rome. You've got barbarians at the gate. We Christians, maybe we need to shrink back into our monasteries. Now, what Dreher's saying is a little more sophisticated, into our communities and our institutions. Because he's gonna argue, rightly so, I think, that most of the cultural institutions now are not godly. And in fact, it's very difficult to be biblical and be an institution in the public square. Make sense? You, it's difficult to have biblical ideas and not be sued and not be shut down. And so what he's saying is we need to get some institutions and preserve them till after this, this craziness is gone and we need to preserve and so let's shrink back. So four major views. We should run this whole place. Uh, second, there's two spheres of influence that God has appointed. The third, let's play the game. And the fourth is, let's leave the table. We wanna know when the game's over, we'll be back to play a different game, right? Does that make sense? This is how Christians have, have really reacted to this teaching of Jesus. How are we going to interact? And you may see yourself somewhere in there, and I'm not critical of any of these points of view. These are ways Christians have tried to, to wrestle with how do we interact with this. So, back to Jesus. So what did Jesus actually mean when he said, render to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what is God's? Some people said, totally different spheres. Religion and the world have nothing to do with each other. Some said they're two different spheres that should influence each other. Some said he meant that everything is God's and so we need to go dominate the world and take the gospel in a, when I say forceful, I don't mean violent, but I mean in a very aggressive, go out and speak and convert the whole world. So Christians have looked at this a little differently and some have looked at it as, he's basically saying, look, I'm here to do spiritual stuff, I got nothing to do with this, the rest of the world. Historically speaking, I'm, the one argument I'm gonna make is I'm gonna argue against that point of view because historically, that's too shallow for Jesus. You know, that's my first reaction is, Jesus is way too clever for that. Secondly, watch how it played out. This is the interesting thing. I don't think you can understand what Jesus meant there for about 250 years. So what happens to Caesar after this point? Well, I wanna show you what's happening after the resurrection of Jesus. This is a map that shows you the spread of Christianity not the military spread of Christianity. This is just people like the book of Acts going out and preaching and people believing, etc. In the first century, so from the time that Jesus is raised, say, let's call it 34 AD, to 100 AD, Christians cover all that area in green, all around the Mediterranean. A lot of people become Christians, enough that the Christians start being persecuted by the Jews. 
When you read Paul's letters, the book of Acts, what you see in the early part is you see the Jews are persecuting them. They're beating them, uh, they're killing, they're stoning. Uh, Paul was stoned, left for dead. They thought he was dead or they would have kept on. But basically you see hostile persecution from the Jews. Second century, from 100 AD to 200 AD, the Romans wake up and they realize, hey, these Christians think Jesus is Lord. They don't think Caesar is Lord, and they're really bad citizens. In fact, that's hate speech. In fact, they're bad people. We should kill them. And they started to kill them in the tens of thousands. And yet, you'll notice how much more Christianity spreads. And that's the gray area on this map. It's basically all over Europe, goes into the east. It goes further than that, but, but that's... You get some of the apostles going to China and other places, but for the purposes of this map, I wanted you to see it expands. Now they're being intensely persecuted by the Romans. So that's second century. Third century, which isn't on this map. So now we're into the 200s. So from 200 to 300, the persecution gets worse. In fact, from 235 AD onward, and this is, you can just see this in the Roman histories of the time. This isn't in the Bible. From 235 on, anybody who wanted to be emperor, one of the things you had to talk about was how hard you would be on the Christians. Now, are the Christians doing anything wrong? Are they blowing up uh, places? Are they assassinating people? Not at all. Christians were doing, you just can't find anything about them being violent at all. And, but what they were is they thought the Roman gods are gonna punish us because these guys are terrible citizens. We're gonna to have to get rid of them. So we're gonna bring them up and we're gonna say, you need to say Caesar is Lord or we're gonna kill you. And I kid you not, the, the church fathers writing histories at this time is unbelievable how many Christians were killed just one after another because they wouldn't say Caesar is Lord. So they are persecuted intensely publicly up until 300 AD. What happens in 300 AD? A guy named Constantine becomes emperor. And Constantine in 313 uh, issues the Edict of Milan and changes the policy. I'm going to go into a lot of the reasons why he does this, but for the purpose of my story, changes the policy. Christians are now to be treated benevolently Christian religion is not to be persecuted. Where possible, Christians are supposed to be given their houses back, their bank accounts unfrozen, because Christians lost everything just for being Christian during this time period. And so the Edict of Toleration said Christianity is okay. They're allowed to assemble and they're allowed to get together. So by 313 AD, where's Caesar? Caesar's dead. The guy whose picture's on that coin is long gone. And very quickly, Christianity becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire by 325 AD. So here's my point when we go back to say, what did Jesus mean? What Jesus meant was this, give to Caesar what Caesar, give to God what God. So on one sense, that was just really clever. On another sense, it was a little deeper because Jews couldn't give money that had the picture of Caesar on it at the temple. That's why the money changers were there. 
they would take that denarius and they would give you a shekel. And the shekel did not have a picture of Caesar or anybody else on it. And so you had to exchange that so you could give it. So no good Jew liked to use that money. No devout Jew wanted to use that money because it was just, it's defiled. You know, it was blasphemous, right? And so there's a sense in which he's saying, from a religious point of view, what have I to do with this coin? What do I have to do with this king you call Caesar? But in a deeper sense, what Jesus is saying is way more clever than that. He's saying, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and God what is God's. And if you know what Jesus believed, everything is God's. Nothing stays with Caesar. And history proves that to be the case. It turns out Caesar didn't own anything. Caesar was just renting it. What did Caesar take to the grave with him? Nothing. What happened to Caesar's empire? Caesar, he's so powerful, he could crucify Jesus. 325, guess what? It's Christian. It's not even Roman anymore. Now all of a sudden, if you believe in the Roman gods, you're a bad citizen. So the point I'm trying to make, and not very well, because I could tell from your faces, but the point I'm trying to make is this. Jesus is being way more clever than you think. Jesus is saying, none of this is actually Caesar's, but if he wants the coin with his picture on it, go ahead. I'm actually going to overthrow Caesar. It's just gonna take a while, and I'm gonna do it a different way. What Jesus said was, and this is the point that I want us to think about, is there a separation between church and state? In my view, no. Everything belongs to God. But are we playing the game that the secular folks are playing? No. Jesus was playing a different game. Did he become a political party and say, I think I'll get myself elected Caesar? No. The people wanted to make him king so he could overthrow Caesar. And he said, no, I know that's what you think the Messiah is gonna do, but we're not doing it that way. That's not the game I'm going to play. Not gonna play the politics game, not gonna play the conquest game. And so the church is playing a completely different game at the same time. Here are the takeaways. Christians do not share the same life view and goals of the secular society around them. In my view, Christians becoming a political party and playing that game is not the course that Jesus set out. Is Jesus going to change the world? Yes, oh, most certainly. The Roman Empire took a little time, didn't it? But now it changed forever. It didn't just change for a four-year election cycle. It didn't just change because he conquered it and then somebody else conquered. It changed forever. It was transformative change not coercive change. You see, governments fundamentally deal with coercive power. No matter what you think, it always comes down to coercion. Is somebody gonna ask me about vaccines and coercion? No, you're not, because I'm not gonna answer it. But you get my point. Governments, and I'm not saying this is necessarily bad, if gov governments can be legitimate and they can use coercive power but governments rely on coercive power. That is not the game that Jesus was playing. Christians didn't coerce anyone, didn't rebel, didn't shoot anybody, didn't get elected, didn't uh, go to the Supreme Court and have a, a rule change just because they wanted it changed. They transformed people and they transformed the entire 
Roman Empire. Jesus sees 325 AD when he answers that question. And the point I'm making is we're playing a different game. We are not after the same thing the culture is. Oh, you may say, well, if the culture wants justice, we want justice, absolutely. We at least want the same thing, we just want it for completely different reasons. And we have a little different view of what justice actually is, a more stringent view. But Christians don't share the same life goals. And that's why Christianity is always subversive. There is no, in the New Testament, you might look there and you might say, what form of government best fits with Christianity? Have you ever thought about that? If we're just a bunch of Christians, how should we form a government? What kind of government would we choose? There's nothing in the New Testament that shows you a particularly Christian form of government. Now, I have an opinion, I happen to agree with Winston Churchill, who said, democracy is the worst form of human government except for all the others we have tried. <laughs> and I agree. I think representation of the people is a good thing. But the church exists in North Korea. The church is growing in North Korea. The church is shrinking in America. The church is growing in China. The church, there is no particular political structure that's conducive to the church. Why? The church is always subversive because the church is always playing a different game. Can you separate church and state? No, because you can't separate Christians out of the population. The church is always going about its mission and it's always subversive and it's always gonna be persecuted because it does not share the goals of the culture. And that's just a given. And finally, Christians use non-traditional means to affect change. Christians use non-traditional means to affect change. What you see Jesus doing is he didn't take a political stand, not because he wasn't political and he wasn't gonna change the world, he just wasn't gonna play that game. He didn't get an army because he wasn't gonna play that game. He was gonna change hearts. And I know we think of that as, oh gosh, that sounds so good, makes me feel warm, should be on you know, some kind of a figurine or a boo-boo kitty doll or something. It's not a, a sentimentalist kind of thing. I want, I'm just gonna point you to the history. It works. It actually changed the Roman Empire forever and changed the world forever. It is a transformative power. That's the game that we are playing and it's always gonna be subversive, and there's no way you can get Christians to sit on the sidelines when that's our goal. Does that make sense? Christians are playing a completely different game, and that's what I'd like you to think, because a lot of times we get wrapped around the axle. Should we be political? Should we not be political? Should we be voting? Should we not be voting? Should we be in politics? Should we not? Can I be a Republican? Can I be a Democrat? Uh, is Democrats and Republicans gonna split the church over social issues or other things or stands that we take? All of those things, the way I wanna shape this up and the way I read this text is wrong game. Just playing the wrong game. We're actually playing a completely different game. And what I wanna do in the next few sessions is flesh that out. I wanna flesh out what does it look like to play the game differently, but we needed to talk about this first. Because if you just jump in and you say, how are we gonna affect the political process? I'm like, well, we're, we're definitely gonna transform this nation, but we're not gonna do that. We're not gonna play that game. We're gonna be very active in the public square, but not like that. 
In other words, it's really foundational to know that Jesus was playing a different game than the Romans, than the Pharisees that came and asked him, and that's why nobody could really get a handle on Jesus because they didn't understand. He's not playing by those rules. He's got a completely different objective. Make sense? So, here's the good news for you. Your anxiety level should go down a little bit because when you read the newspaper, Jesus never counted on Caesar to achieve Jesus's ends. Jesus never counted on any elected official to achieve his church's ends. They're playing a different game. Jesus has a game and he's got his own plan. The church has a mission and we have our own plan. So when you read those things and you say, oh my gosh, the world's just going to hell in a handbasket. Can I say that? I said that. The world's just, it's, you know, it's, it's falling apart. And oh my gosh, look what the president's doing or not doing. Look what the Congress is doing or not doing. Don't get wrapped up in that game because it's not your game. If you are playing that game, you should be very, very worried. And in fact, it doesn't matter if you're the Democratic player in that game or the Republican player in that game. They're both really nervous because it, this game isn't going well. I want you to relax a little bit because we're not playing that game. We also have a plan to change the world, to set things right. We have a mission from God. We're just not gonna do it that way. Next week, we're gonna talk about then how should we engage in the public square? If we're not gonna do it in the traditional way and we're not gonna use the secular mechanisms to do it, we're not gonna all get together and say, hey, let's form a political party, we'll get our own candidate for president and we'll just make everything work out really well, okay? Nobody believes that beyond the second grade. So we're, that's not gonna work out very well, but it's also not the game that we're gonna play. How then are we going to engage in the public square? And that's what we're gonna talk about next time, is what is our relationship to the political process given that we don't have the same goals, we don't have the same view. And I wanna take a look at some text and scripture to see how did the early Christians engage in their political sphere when they had very different goals than the Herod boys, very different goals than the Roman Empire, very different goals than the Persian satraps. Wherever they took the gospel, they were subversive. What did that subversive behavior look like? Because maybe that's what we should be doing too. That's what we'll talk about next time. Thank you guys.